When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Craig Parkinson and this is the Two Shot Podcast. Pop the kettle on and let's dive in. How the devil are you? Um, if my voice is uh, deeper and lower uh, than normal, it's because, let me have a look at the timing of my phone here. It's exactly 25 past the hour of midnight. Um, I've just got back from work, which is one of the reasons why... You know, I haven't been able to record regular episodes, but it's going to get easier to do that in the coming weeks, which is good news, isn't it? It's good news. And the other bit of good news is we've got a new episode this week, uh, and I was able to do two things. Uh, I came back, I'm I'm recording this from, that's my squeaky, hear that, squeaky trainers. Uh, I'm in Brighton at the moment, finishing off uh, the last block of filming, so I'm going to be here for another mm, six weeks or so, but I was lucky enough to go and catch the stand-up comedian, the brilliant stand-up comedian Nick Helm. Uh, on Sunday night. And we were going to record this prior to me seeing the show, uh, which is called uh, What Have We Become? It's on tour right now. You should definitely go and catch it. It's uh, it's brilliant. It's a good, good night out. And I was coming back from Manchester on a Sunday Gave myself a lot of time, and you know, there was a rail strike the day before, which I'm totally for. You know, give people what they need, but it did mess things up the day after, and it basically didn't give myself and Nick enough time prior to him jumping on stage in Brighton. So I said, you know what, let's leave it and let's uh, try and catch up this week. Because I wanted to try and record on the back 
of me seeing the show as soon as possible because he's got a heavy touring schedule, I'm busy filming, and I need to get back recording podcasts because you know how much I really love it. And, yeah, it's uh, it was one of those. Anyway, we sorted it. And um, I spoke to Nick this morning from his hotel room and from me here in Brighton uh, prior to my uh, seaside walk along the beach, which I try and do every morning. Oh, it's incredible. I do love it. And, um, yeah, it's... It's a brilliant conversation. I'm so chuffed that he came on. I don't know if you know if you know Nick, you'll know him either as stand up. I first came across Nick on it wasn't it wasn't live at the Apollo. It was something else. I don't remember what it was, but he was unapologetic when he came out on stage. And it was, I don't want to say it was aggressive, but it was certainly, um, <laughs> um, look, he, he wasn't backwards or coming forwards. He started off the routine that I saw, which I'm sure you may have seen, asking a certain member of the audience if they liked jokes. And he kept on asking if they liked jokes again and again and again and again and again. Um, but the onstage, Nick Helm, and what you're about to hear, the offstage, Nick Helm, you know, they're two very different people. And... He also starred in three series of what I think is, can be, can we, we can class it as, I think, a cult sitcom now. It's called Uncle. It's with Nick, um, the brilliant Daisy Haggard. And it's ten years ago now. Um... I think, look, if it's not on BBC iPlay, it's definitely on BritBox. If you haven't seen it, I heartily recommend it. It is passionate, funny, angry. Um, it's great. It's really, really good sitcom. But yet yeah, Nick's show uh, on tour at the moment, what have we become? Do, do go and see it. It'll be coming to a town near you, or if you've missed it, then, you know, catch up, jump in the car, go somewhere else. But this episode with Nick, myself and Nick had met um, before, only very briefly. We certainly hadn't sat down for an hour remotely. You know, it's always a bit difficult when it's remote. Um, But this wasn't difficult at all. I wanted to do it in person but I don't think we'd lost anything by doing it um, in this remote fashion. He is extremely honest, very, very open. Um, 
and takes the reins with the questions that get thrown out there and look, what I'm going to say is it does go quite deep with regards to mental health struggles and suicidal thoughts, uh, antidepressants, medication. It's not, it's not bleak, it's not bleak chat at all, but there's a certain portion, uh, about two-thirds in, that we feel we need to have a chat about that and discuss it, and Nick's more than happy to do that. Uh, I, I hopefully I was I handled it in a sensitive way. There's certain things we didn't talk about that I didn't think we needed to to discuss. But also we talk about the mechanics of being a stand up um, when stand up is taken away from you, as it has been for many stand up comedians. How he builds a show, what he loves about being a stand-up comedian, um, all sorts. It's a, it's a brilliant lesson. It's a brilliant lesson, and I was so happy that he came on. And after, uh, what, we had, like, a three-week break? It's a cracker to come back to. So um, <clears throat> I'm going to have a little drink of my water. And I'm going to pack up because I've got a few days off. Brilliant. I uh, am going to get some more episodes booked in as soon as I can. And you know what? It'll be, we'll be back doing regular Thursday episodes very, very soon. But until then, please put your headphones on, slow down on that treadmill, enjoy the commute whatever you're doing and enjoy this is the two shot podcast with the brilliant mr nick helm enjoy i'll see you at the end nick morning how are you i'm very well thank you how are you I'm good. I'm all right. But I'm not a touring comedian. I'm a jobbing actor, which means I'm not working till half past three this afternoon. But how how is the tour going? It's great. Um, yeah, it's sort of started... Uh, I wasn't sure what it was going to be like when it started, you know. Um, In what way? Um, well, I wasn't sure what the audiences would be like, because this is, this is the first time I've sort of like gone out and about since the pandemic. Um mm. Uh, I did Edinburgh. Edinburgh was really lovely. I did a one-hour show in Edinburgh, and with this I had to, you know... Um, not I had to. In actual fact, I found the hour, like, more difficult to work out what to take out because I knew I knew I was going to go on tour, so I, it had to be, like, a 90-minute show with an interval in the middle. Um, and so, so Edinburgh was an hour, and then when I started the tour, it was just like, well, how does the new material fit back in? But, um, yeah, it's been lovely. It's been fantastic. People have been really nice, and um, I like meeting audiences afterwards. And, yeah, the whole thing's been brilliant, really. Yeah. Well, I was I was lucky enough to see it in Brighton on Sunday night, and it was a really good crowd, and they were really going for it, because you don't, you don't really pull any punches. 
Um, it was a weird audience, though, wasn't it? On a Sunday, it was a Sunday night audience in Brighton, but they were like a Friday night audience, really. They were like yeah. very sort of. Um, I wouldn't say I don't. I don't. I don't think of it as heckling. I think people were just trying to sort of like join in because they weren't trying to disrupt the show. They were just sort of trying to participate. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've never seen anything like that on a Friday night, really. On a Sunday, on a Sunday <laughs> night, on a Sunday night, it was uh, yeah. Um, but it was fun. It was a fun one. But they're not all like that. Um, some of them are like more like theatre shows, and then some of them are more like. Well, I guess that was the only one that's been exactly like that. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was fun. It was a fun one. Can you can you tell as a comedian what an audience are going to be like within the sort of first ten minutes, or whether you're going to have to work much harder to get them on side or not? Because the thing is, it's not like you're supporting or you know they're taking a punt. They've bought tickets to come and see you, so you would already think that they would be fans of of your work anyway. It ten yeah I mean a tour show tends to be people are only there because they want to be there mm. and um, and when you're on a like when you're on a mixed bill that's that's I find um, I find mixed bills really stressful like on a, like it, as as a as a jobbing club comedian going on stage um, when uh, the audience have already really enjoyed three other comedians and then you've got to go on and kind of like and you and you're in you're in the green room going I'm nothing like any of them guys. And um, and then you've got to go on and match that. That's um, I find that I find that stressful. Um, not that you know, not that I can't do that, but I like, I just find the whole build up to that quite stressful. Um, but when you're on tour, I kind of just remind myself that they're there to see me. And then when I go out, if if they do have, you know, if anyone if anyone does have like a problem it's kind of like it's up to them to leave really i think yeah because literally everyone else is there for it last night i came on stage i was in birmingham and i came on stage and there was a guy with his phone on his knee and it was all lit up and i and it was the very first thing that happened when i came out on stage he had his phone and he put his phone down but he didn't switch it off um and i was just like what's going on here and he was bidding on um a rucksack on ebay and <laughs> Fucking hell! And he had like uh, twelve minutes left on the on the thing, and um, and and at first you're kind of like, oh my, what's what's <laughs> why are you here? But then um, he became like a running joke throughout the night, and it was just a really really fun one in the end. And I started the show differently from how I normally do because of this guy, and then it just made the whole show a lot looser, and it was and it, it was fine. So I think that. If ninety nine percent of the audience are on side, there's always going to be some people that are dragged along by their friends or, mm. or their partners and stuff. But as long as ninety nine percent of the audience are on side, I think you can kind of win people over. <laughs> you see, that's the difference as a, a as a, a comedian. Now, as an actor, if you're doing a piece of theatre and someone's texting and it just pings and lights up, you can't exactly stop the play and go, "Can you get off your fucking phone and pay attention?" It can, it can, that that can be really distracting, and no matter. How many times I go to the theatre, people put their phone on silent or sometimes not or let it or let it ring and sometimes answer it. And there's like nothing you can do there, even yeah. if you sat there as an audience member or whether yeah, you're on stage. Yeah, you do have quite a lot of um, you, you do have quite a lot of freedom as a comedian to do that. But mm. on, the, on, the, on the flip side, 
when you're in a play and you're in theatre, there's like more than there's more than you on stage, so it's not so much of a personal insult. You know, it's yeah. kind of like they're insulting all of you in a way. When there's one guy that just won't switch his phone out, and you're going like, "I've travelled to Birmingham for this," and and he's just like, and he and he and he, he gives so little of a shit about it that he can't even be bothered to switch his phone off. It's not. It was not even switching his phone off, Craig. It was. It was not just sort of like making the screen go dark. It was just like wow. Um, so yeah, it's more of a personal insult, I suppose. But then you have like the ability to kind of deal with it as and when. So I don't know. It's good and bad, isn't there? Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> but Nick, for you, let's go back. So what came first for you? Because was it was it music or was it comedy or was it acting? Because um, at the moment, I know because you've done all you do what you do all three. Yeah, to, to various degrees of ability and success, but yeah, um, I uh, well, when I was at, when I was young, I was very like creative in general, and I guess I've I guess I never really picked one, and then I still haven't really, and I, that's that's good in some ways because you know I'll do a tour, and then when I finish this tour, I've got an album coming out, um, and depending on when this is out, it'll be out already. It's coming out mm. on Halloween. And then, um, uh, and so I, I might concentrate on some music then, or I might con- concentrate on actually just writing and trying to get, uh, you know, my screenplay finished and all of this stuff. But um, I guess what I started out doing was I started out, I wanted to act and I wanted to sing. And I always wrote songs when I was, you know, a sixth former and at school when I started like learning guitar and stuff um I used to write songs to help me do that um and then when I started so then so then so then I went up to Edinburgh when I was 20 and I wrote my first show when I was 20 and um uh and I really started writing because I was so shit at auditions and um and I was just like I'd never got any parts um and uh, I got so nervous and overwhelmed by it that I just started writing stuff for myself to perform, and then, um, and then, I, and, and, and I'd, I'd like direct theatre and write theatre, and then um, that became like very sort of like difficult to. It's like theatre's like when you're like doing independent theatre, that's like being in a band where you're kind of like convincing five other people that your idea is worth pursuing, mm-hmm. and. Um, and then I got to a point, I'd, well, the story is that I'd, I'd spent about seven or eight years writing a play. I took it up to Edinburgh. Due to a printing error, it got a one-star review. <laughs> 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 and, um, and then they, they, the, 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 it was from the Scotsman, and the Scotsman uh, phoned up the theatre and they said, oh, there's been a printing error, you've got a one-star review. But it was actually meant to be a two-star review. And... Um, <laughs> And I think if it had been a two-star review, people would have just ignored it. But because it was one star, people came to watch this car crash. And, right. um, uh, and, it, and, it, and it went all right. But at the end of that, I was just like, if you can spend seven years writing something and in, uh, in three seconds you can <laughs> accidentally um, yeah, give it a one-star review, then, um, then, I, then I'll see what stand-up comedy is like. And it was always one of those things that I wanted to try. So when I started doing stand-up comedy, uh, that sort of like scratched that itch of kind of like uh, writing and directing and performing and all of that. And then when I had to do 20 minutes, I only had 15 minutes, so I added a song into it and then mm. that 
that bumped up, and then everyone liked the song more than all the stand-up. And then, you know, and then I became kind of like a stand-up comedian that did music. And then in 2011, Henry Normal came to see me in Edinburgh, and after that, he put me in Uncle, and then now I'm an actor. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think years ago, from, from the outset, it always seemed to me uh, to be that stand-ups and I'm going back a fair few years, would go to Edinburgh and their goal was to be seen, like, you know, by people like Henry or some Channel 4 execs, so then they could get their own sitcom. And I'm not saying for everybody, but it seemed to be quite popular at that time. Um, I think that's definitely... Well, it's it's changed so much in the last 10 years, and I'd Mm. say the 10 years before that. I think stuff like Life at the Apollo changed um, the possibilities of... uh, what you could do with a career in stand-up comedy. Um, you'd go from being kind of like a working, jobbing comedian to being a household name overnight. And in the early 2000s, you could sell out a tour just by one performance. On, um, or, so we've been led to believe, you could sell out a tour from one performance on um, Live at the Apollo. And, um, but there were only like five comedians, you know, in the country. And then when it became kind of like um, a legitimate way of... Uh, becoming a superstar, then uh, people became a lot more interested. You know, there's there's um, there's degrees, there's university degrees that you can do in stand up now, where you pay loads of money to spend three years. I don't know what the course is. I don't know. I don't know what you. I don't know what you'd learn on a stand up comedy degree, really, unless you're learning about the history of stand up, which which I guess I would find really interesting. But yeah, I I, I think that there's nothing. You can't really beat just getting out there and doing it and dying on your ass night after night until you get good, you know. And did your in the early days when you were out performing stand up, did you did you know the, what the goal was as in terms of I was going to be me or I was going to be a version of me or I was going to be a sort of slightly more grotesque character or cuz I don't ever think that any stand-ups are a hundred percent themselves. I always feel they're they're aversion. It's like a persona. Like, uh, yeah, it's a persona that you kind of like. It's not like I've got to get in character. It's sort of like a switch that you flip, and then you know, um, when I'm off stage, I'm one thing, and then as soon as I go on stage, I'm another thing. Um, but I've had to be because my because my act is so kind of. Um, you know, not not aggressive, but my my, my act is, is so extreme in terms of personality-wise to me. Mm. I've always had to be very careful about who I am on stage and who I am off stage. So I'm always very sort of, like, polite with people and mild-mannered with people and, and, you know, to let people know that this is different from what's on stage and, you know. Um, and... Uh, What's the question? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose in the early days, did that Ooh. come fully formed to you that you were going to be this? And I mean, you said it there. I mean, it's not an aggressive persona, but he's. I remember in the early days when I first saw it, I thought, fucking hell, this guy's, he's certainly not backwards or coming forwards. Mm. Did, did that come to you quite quickly? Or was it, was it, a, bit, was it a bit falling on your ass and failing? I guess, like, through theatre, when I wrote theatre, I used to write about emotions and depression and stuff like that, and um, and so I sort of had an idea of what I was on stage before I started doing stand-up. Mm. Um, 
But when I first started doing stand-up, I sort of wanted everyone to like me. So I'd go on and I'd be all like, hello, how are you all doing? Oh, isn't everything wonderful, guys? And um, um, and it was sort of like, it was all right. But um, I'd written quite a lot of material and I just basically realised that I didn't know how to perform it. So um, so I, I took a year, I think about 2008, 2009, I stopped writing stand-up. And I just was like, I've got loads of stand-up. How do you perform it? And I just worked on how to perform it. Um, and I think kind of like I'd had, you know, a couple of specific gigs in my mind uh, where the audience were kind of apathetic and there was 10 acts on. Well, I'll tell you what. When I first started, there'd be kind of like, you'd do like a laughing horse gig in central London. And I lived in St Albans with my parents, so I'd travel into London and it'd be a Sunday night and it'd be rainy and cold and miserable. And you'd go to like this pub and there'd be three audience members and ten comedians. And every comedian wanted to be Stuart Lee. And mm-hmm. they'd all go on and do a Stuart Lee. And because that's so low energy... Um, yeah, the night would kind of, like, really struggle, and so I would always sort of, like, take it upon myself to, like, bring the energy in the room, and I'd go out and I'd do it, and everyone would be like, oh, that was really great. And you'd be like, yeah, but I, it's not what I want to be Stuart Lee too, do you know? And, <laughs> um, and so it, it was kind of like... Uh, so I kind of got a, 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 a name for myself, I guess, by just being kind of like a person that put energy in the room. Um, and then And then later on, when I kind of, like, could was doing all right, I could kind of, like, take a step back and think about who I actually wanted to be on stage. And and then I could kind of, like, put it put it together that way. My my goal as a comedian on stage is I've never tried to be cool and I'm not trying... Um, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to be likeable. And, um, and in the past, it's been kind of, like, a bit more of a caricature caricature a caricature or a character like um uh, yeah even like even like six years ago i think i i kind of like it would be it would be like this heightened huge performer and then over the last few years this this is like the third this is the third tour show the third show that i've done in a row that's been sort of like um talking about me on a personal level Mm. whereas whereas before it would be kind of like like general stand-up, you know, um, uh, where, where, where you're talking about general things and themes like dreams and war. And um, uh, and I did a show about Evil Knievel, and that was maybe a little bit more personal. But now I'm just kind of like like laid bare and stuff. And, um, and, and that's kind of like being guided by my audience as well. I have a really good relationship with my audience. And... Um, and I would talk about I would talk about depression in the past, and people would ask me about it, and um, and and then I would talk to them about it, and then I found that my audiences found it really comforting or useful for me to talk about that on stage, and then when I did live at the Apollo, I talked a bit about depression, and people took it out of context, and they got um, not not loads of people, it was probably about three people. But I, but it, it, it stuck with me and I was just like, right, so the last three shows I've done, I've tried to sort of like put my, you know, lay my table out and just be sort of like, this is where I stand on mental health and uh, depression um, and I'm, I'm writing comedy about it, but I'm not making fun of it. 
And, you know, one of the most, you know, I, I, my first goal is to make people laugh and to have a nice night out and to enjoy themselves. I don't feel like the best way to do that is to just tell everyone that everything's all right. And so I sort of like try and take people through kind of like an emotional journey where you kind of like you bring them down and then you bring them up again. Uh, it's very important to do that last bit. And then um, and then I really sort of, I, I, I found that the more honest I was about myself, the, 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 the more people uh, related to it. And, mm. um, and so first and foremost, I want to be funny. And then secondly, um, I, want, I, want, I want people to find some sort of comfort in it. And, um, and, and I want to start conversations on the way home, you know. So if people come and see me and I talk about depression, I talk about antidepressants and I talk about whatever experience I've been through, then it opens up conversations for people on the way home to start, gives them like a helping hand to start conversations on the way back. You know, I mean, we, you were in Uncle, and um, Uncle basically does that as a sitcom. It's kind of mm. like, um, I didn't write it, but one of the reasons I wanted to do it was that, um, that it was about stuff that meant a lot to me. And... Um, and I get people coming up to me all the time saying that, you know, they watched Uncle and it helped them through a really difficult part, part, part of their life. And it's it, it, that, for me, is the most fulfilling thing about doing what I've, you know, my body of work so far. That is the most fulfilling thing about it, is the fact that it's really helped people. Um, and it's funny, you know, and I think that that's... If, I'm, if, if I've got one job, then that's it, you know, is to sort of, like, um, I don't know make people make people laugh but also kind of like help people a little bit but you do and i think the why people connect with because i don't want to give it away because i want people to go and i do want to see you on tour even though that's not what we do on this podcast but i do want people to go and see it because it's a fucking fantastic show but what you do do which i think is lovely and it's delicate is you don't preach it's not preachy because Mm. because it's because of the certain moment towards the end of of this show where you do talk uh, openly and and quite personally about some subjects, and you bring it you bring it quite down, and it's and it's a lovely personal moment that people can emotionally connect with, and it isn't preachy. Mm. I find sometimes because you know you touched on Uncle there, and there were certain topics in that show going back a fair few years before it was. And I don't want to poo-poo it when I say this. Before it was fashionable to be talking so openly and honestly about mental health. Yeah, I think people would look back on Uncle and realise that it was ahead of its time. It was. Mm. It, was it, 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 it did. It did lots of things that are very you know, popular now. Um, you know, it's getting on for ten years ago now. Um, yeah, I, I, I. But I would also say that with the live performance stuff, that is trial and error. I think part of my last show, my last show was called Phoenix from the Flames, and I felt like I hadn't quite grasped how I wanted to get the message across. So when the pandemic came and I had to cancel that tour, I was actually sort of relieved because I felt like... I felt like it... I don't think it was 100% preachy, but I do feel like, for me, on a personal level, it, it you know, it was just on... It was just bordering on the wrong side of of that, where um, I don't have all the answers, and uh, and it would be disingenuous of me to go on. St- it, would be, it would be ridiculous if, if I went on stage and said, "I've got all the answers, guys, follow me." <laughs> but but all but all all you can do is like set an example of being kind of like um, 
I'm just going to be open about my problems and I'm not going to, I'm not going to hide away. And I'm not saying that this should be kind of like everyone's daily life is to walk around like an open wound, but for the, for the hour and a half I'm on stage, you know, I'm kind of like demonstrating that you can come on stage and you can do that and people can still kind of like uh, find you funny and likable and all these other things. And, 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 I don't know, it's just kind of like, go on stage and if I say it out loud, then maybe it'll help them say it out loud. But um, but that that's that's where I feel, like, um, comfortable, you know, whereas whereas in my last show, I felt like it was just erring on the side of um, preachy, like, I've solved it, I used to be depressed and now I'm not. Mm. And I've fixed myself. Um, although... <clears throat> Although I probably need to rewatch that show because I don't really think that that was the that would never have been that, that wasn't the message, but but I feel like it was it was a step closer to being kind of like hey I'm all sorted now and mm. um, and one of the things that I learned or I kind of came to terms with in lockdown was that um, that I think that that my mental health issues and and, and depression and all of that stuff that's not something that I can that I necessarily. I'm going to fix that I'm necessarily going to solve but but that was actually quite freeing <clears throat> because then it, it then it came down to well, if you're going to be with this thing for your whole life then how are you going to cope with it and then it became about working out how to cope with with these issues and then that that was actually rather than being like a negative, like, oh, I'm stuck with this thing. It was more like, okay, great. Well, we're in it together, me, yeah. and, my, me and my brain. So how are we going to get through it all together? And, and, and I found that kind of comforting in a way. And, and I suppose freeing as well to know. Yeah. And it's, it's a bit like what you talk about in the show towards the end is, it, you know, it is trial and error. Like medication is trial and error. Maybe this 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 path is not for you, but but this road is comforting and could help you in some way. Yeah. Well, when yeah. when 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 did you first realize? Because you know we all get down and we all suffer from anxiety, sort of now more than ever. But you know, depression, uh, you know, rears its ugly head in various different ways. But when did you realize that it that it was depression and it wasn't just some sort of mood or a small bit part of anxiety um well again it's it's like it's that is ever-evolving thing where um it's it, it's it's difficult isn't it because like i think i was talking to i was talking to a friend maybe maybe a year ago maybe a year and a half ago mm. but not but not very long ago and uh, she was talking about anxiety and um, and I was just like, well, what's that then? And then she sort of described what anxiety was. And I was like, well, I've got that. And and I think kind of like for a long time, I lumped everything into this one category, which was depression. Mm. And uh, and then there's bits of OCD mixed in with that. And and um, and that kind of like opened up this whole kind of um, avenue to sort of like explore. Where where it was just like oh hang on a minute these all of these I'm 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 sort of like dealing with all these conflicting feelings and um, and it's like a whirlwind in my head sometimes and 
Uh, and actually, it's quite good to sort of like separate things out and go kind of like, well, that's you just sort of like with your OCD, just running things round and round and round in your head. And then that's kind of your, your anxiety because you're sort of like, you know, you, uh, you can't leave your flat. And, um, and so I don't think I've got to the end of the journey and I don't think that's what I'm sort of like saying. I think, I think what I'm saying in the show is that I'm sort of like on a journey and I'm sort of exploring it. And these are the things that personally um, have helped me. Uh, I don't say do what I do. I sort mm-hmm. of like just say that kind of like, this is what I've been through. And, um, and, and if, if you can take anything good from that, then, 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 then take it. But, um, but, and, and also you're fine. You're finding your tools to help you along with the journey. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and chemically everyone's made up differently. You know, it's like the mm-hmm. first drug that I was put on was Sertraline and that really, that was, that was, that that really fucked me up for for you know about six months where I you know I was having uh, suicidal thoughts and I kept talking to the doctor and saying like these are making me worse and he kept saying like I'll oh, just give it another two weeks give it another two weeks and it was just like this is much worse much much worse than it was when I wasn't taking them and so I had to sort of like really like argue with the doctor and say that this isn't this isn't what I want this isn't for me and and convince them that I wanted something else which is ridiculous um but but like having that conversation with my friend like a year and a half ago that just came about just through us talking together and then I was just like oh and then I found a new avenue of something to explore and to discover and um and so, so my my first thing would be if you if you if you're suffering from anything, talk to people and tell people what it is that you're going through. Um, uh, get on a waiting list for for a therapist from the NHS and and, mm-hmm. and and talk to talk to them, talk to your GP, talk to your friends and your family. My family are not the best people to talk to about about depression. You know, mm-hmm. they and and one of the things that I've learned through therapy is that. You know, you have to accept people for who they are and what they are, and you can't be angry with them for not being what you want them to be. Yeah. My my mum and dad are brilliant, but I they don't know they get they get scared and they get lost when it comes to depression, and I try and sort of like, um, avoid talking to them about like the really big stuff. Whereas I've got a couple of friends, um, who have been uh really really kind of amazing and helped me find kind of um uh kind of avenues to sort of like help myself with and then also my girlfriend's been incredibly supportive and incredible and and you know we met during the pandemic and um and I thought I was all right and then I kind of like had a had an absolute kind of um car crash and and she's been and and right from the beginning she's kind of like been been completely there for me and supported me and um uh, but it's not like when i say go out and talk to people it's just is not not everyone will be there and will be able to help you no absolutely not i agree but um but it's it's about kind of like it's about educating yourself and teaching yourself and kind of like working out through trial and error what's what and who's what and 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 when i drew that line in my head about what my family are capable of and what they're not capable of um 
then uh, it improved my relationship with my family, you know? I wasn't just there, like, going, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> why, why can't you see what's wrong with me? Why can't you... You know, I was just like, oh, we're going out for a bit of Sunday lunch today. Right, OK. And I sort of, like, managed to deal with, with things like that. Um, yeah. I mean, with things like that, with talking to uh, parents about sort of deep topics and personal topics like that, I sometimes think it could possibly be a generational thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think there is a lot of anxiety in the world now. Um, uh, I think that there's lots of reasons for that. Um, I think, you know, I, I think social media isn't kind of like a coincidence and, and, and it's stuff that our parents didn't have to deal with and only deal with in a very superficial kind of distant level, right? It doesn't, mm. rule, it doesn't rule their lives. Um, and so I think it is a little bit difficult for them to relate sometimes and for them to understand. And, uh, and, and that's not really, that's not really their fault. And, um, and, and also for some people, their parents will be the best people that they can talk to. So it's, it's, we're all, we're all different, you know, we're all different in terms of like our relationships with people in our lives and, and who we know and what we've got and, uh, and we're also different in terms of the ke- chemical uh, makeup of our brains and everything. And so, so it's kind of like literally you, you can't go out there and say, "Oh, I've got mental health issues and this is how to solve them." But it is kind of like I've got mental health issues and this is how I'm tackling them. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think that the more people talk about it, the other thing is, even if you take nothing away from the show, just going out and talking about it like it's normal is is a big help in general, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just kind of like, you know, um, I, I with this show, rather than, you know, giving a big dramatic build-up and a reveal in the third act that, and then, dear reader, it turned out I suffered from depression, you know. I, I come out and I say it right at, the st- uh, right at the start of the show. It's almost sort of like a, a, a crazy way to start a show because you'd come out and you'd say, I start talking about antidepressant uh, medication that I'm on. And it's kind of like, well, this isn't kind of like a real kind of like crowd pleaser, is it? But <laughs> it, it's, always gone, it's always gone well. And, yeah. And, and then once I've dealt with it, I can just do the rest of the show and sort of... And get on with it. And I think um, I think normalising it. If 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 you're not giving like specific advice, which I which I would, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't ever want to give out like specific advice. But um, but just by going out and talking about it, you know, you're, you're setting an example for people that that is all right. Nick, you touched on before about possibly going back and watching the last show. Are you quite sort of forensic in your approach about going back and watching the show and seeing what worked and seeing what you want to fix? Because I would have thought that, well, that's quite specific to that show. Yeah. If, it's, if it's gone, there's kind of nothing you can change. Or is it, is it more about your uh, approach to a joke or how you deal with an audience about what you can learn to take forward into the next shows? Um, no, I think that each show is its own thing. And mm. I, I, and once I've finished the show, I draw a line under it, I forget about it. And then this, this show, I mean, my last show was written before the pandemic. And this show was written after a two year break. Um, I found, I found my last show incredibly, um, stressful mentally, um, because I was talking about mental health issues and I felt, like I said, I felt like I was, I was, 
erring on the wrong side of preachiness. And whether I was or not, I don't know. But, like, um, um, I knew that that's not what I wanted to do. But also, mm. when we cancelled when we cancelled the tour because of the pandemic, um, I was so relieved and I didn't want to do stand-up. And when the pandemic... It was, it was weird, wasn't it? Because it was like... We're in very competitive industries where there are only so many jobs for a lot of people. And um, and with comedy, it's kind of like Edinburgh's every year. You kind of like get in this... It's like a school year, you know, and Edinburgh's your exams. And then throughout the year, you're kind of like getting ready for your exams. And then you pens down at the beginning of August. You do your, you do your show and then you get reviewed. And then in... In the autumn, you you go on tour, and then in January you start kind of writing a new show again. And um, and it's if you took if you took an Edinburgh off, you'd feel like everyone was overtaking you. And so even if you took a break, it would be incredibly stressful because you'd just be thinking about all the things that you weren't doing and all the people that were overtaking you and doing all this. And I've always tried to, you know, be as I've always tried to sort of like not compete, you know, and just do my thing. And my thing is so different from everyone else anyway that mm -hmm. it's just sort of, the, the, the not like there is no contest, but it's just like you can't really compete with this because it's different. So so I've always just tried to just do my own thing. and, and But you get sucked into being uh, competitive and it's not mm -hmm. a good state of mind for me to be in. And, um, and so when the pandemic hit, although it was terrible on a lot of levels you've got to kind of look at the global thing and the personal thing. And, and on a personal level, the fact that everyone had to stop kind of meant that it was possible. It was like the first break I'd had in 20 years, you know, and wow. like, like mentally. And, um, and, and I kind of needed it. And then after I'd sort of like healed for a little bit, like, like, you know, Month and uh, I eventually started wanting to do stand up again, but I'd got to a point where I didn't want I didn't want to do it and and then when uh, the restrictions got lifted, I, my first goal wasn't write a tour show. My first goal was just scrape something together so you can say it on stage. And so the tour show, you know, superficially ended up being um, like a greatest hits of my favorite routines that I've done since since we've all been allowed out again. And mm -hmm. then the frame the framework is, you know, looking back on the last few years, but the actual content of the show is stuff that, uh, that I've really enjoyed, you know, like um uh well I've got like I've got like specific set pieces. I've got a bit about HelloFresh and I've got a bit about Prince Andrew and I've got a bit about uh being on an aeroplane and uh and and comparing it to the pandemic and um, and those were all like chunks that I really enjoyed, and then it's about putting them in a framework where, um, where, where it works, uh, where it all, where it all sort of like tries to flow together. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's kind of like bookended with this story about my family, which I wrote specifically for Edinburgh. I think I wrote that during the first week when I was in Edinburgh because I got up to Edinburgh with all these bits, and I was just like, I don't have a beginning or an end. So I wrote the beginning and then I was like, now I need an end. And then, <laughs> and then I wrote the, oh, maybe I wrote the end. And I was just like, how do you set the end up? So then I wrote the beginning, you know, but, um, 
and the you know the bit about Hitler's dad that's that's not in that wasn't in the Edinburgh show but that was like a really fun bit of material that I didn't really have a place for and everyone was like well you've got to put that in the show and when I did Edinburgh I just took it out because it was the only bit that wasn't really about anything and then when I was on tour you put it back in again and it's just like great it's a crowd pleaser everyone everyone likes that bit and um, yeah and so really it's kind of like you look at a show as like a piece of uh, theatre and you kind of like go right it's got this story that goes through it and it's got a beginning and a middle and an end and it's all very but but in terms of kind of like putting this show together it was really it was like Lego it was just like this is a bit that I like and this is a bit that I like and this is a bit that I like and, and how do you construct it all whereas the last show was was I think um, very much kind of like this is my journey through a thing and it was it was it was it started off as, as kind of like, how do I tell this story? Being specific about Edinburgh, you touched on there how you didn't really have that that's that certain start or that certain end, and you're just going to try and write it when you get up there. That's quite a scary prospect to go up there for a month. Is that? A, do you normally work like that? Um, yeah, I, I I would say. Well, in the early days, when I did something like uh, my my first like big, well, I tell you what, the year before that in two thousand and nine, I was meant to do a show with two other comedians who dropped out right at the last minute, and um, and when I tried to cancel the show because it was under my name, um, they wouldn't let me, and they said your name, you'll never you'll never work for PBH ever again, and if you know PBH, it's kind of like. Um, it's, it's it's the free fringe and uh it um it helps a lot of comedians start out mm. but um but at the time i was I, I felt like i was going to be blacklisted and and that was the end of my career um and so i, I i'd written poems and songs in the past so basically i just took a bunch of poems that worked and a bunch of songs that worked and then i came up with a couple of routines and i did it in a very short amount of time maybe a month and I went up to Edinburgh and, and the show sort of evolved for like the first... It's a bit like a house sort of like expanding and and it, it found its kind of like place after a few days. And then um, and then that was just a really good show and, it, and, and I put it together very, very quickly. And then when I did um, 2010, uh, I was previewing that, but I was like doing stuff with props and um, I had sort of like... Uh, a, a musician friend who was on stage with me he played guitar and uh, and it was just uh, there were all these elements to it that and and plus it's kind of like I need a song so I'll write a song and I'll spend a day or two days writing a song but at the end of doing that you've written a four minute song and you haven't written 56 minutes of stand-up yeah so it's just like, well, what, what, okay, the song's great, but it's just like, what do I do with the rest of the time? Mm. And so previews were always just a nightmare. You'd kind of try and, try and do a couple of previews and then it'd be like, well, that doesn't work and that doesn't work and whatever. Um, and I think some people pre, everyone's different, everyone works differently. Some people preview it until they're happy with the show and then they go, right, that's the show. And then they take it up to Edinburgh. But I'll, preview it until I kind of like go I think I've got a, the basic gist of it and maybe the last uh, in 2010 my last preview was rubbish but um but I knew what didn't work and then I knew what did work and then I took it up to Edinburgh and I did it and then also on the first day 
there was like four people in the room. And I used to do a thing where I'd sing, nice to meet you, nice to greet you, nice to say hello, and I'd get an audience member out, and then I'd say, nice to meet you, nice to greet you, nice to meet you, nice to greet you, and nice to meet you, nice to greet you, nice to say hello. And then I'd say hello, and they'd say hello, and then they'd say their name, and then i go, great. And, and that was it, and I was going to work with them on you know throughout the hour there'd be an audience member who'd be like helping me out and that's what I went up to Edinburgh with but on the first day there was four people in the audience and it was just like well it's a bit weird just taking one person out so I got like everyone out of the audience on stage and we all met each other and I put them back and then the next day there was 10 people in the audience and I got them all out and then at the end of the week there was like it was like it was filled you know there was like people were coming up to me in the streets going, apparently you get everyone on stage. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah. And it became its own sort of like marketing thing. It was like, I, when, when people say there's word of mouth, you know, you're, you're not really in the loop on that because people are talking about you, not to you. Mm. But there was like this word of mouth about that show because I'd got all these people up on stage and every day I'd get like 80 people up on stage and one at a time or like chunks at a time. And there'd always be one person left in the audience that, that would be the audience member. And that's the thing that literally came together throughout the first week of being up in, in the festival. And it was the best, not, maybe not the best thing about the show, but it's one of the things that made that show stand out. Mm. And, um, and, you know, uh, TV people came to see that. That's what got me my job on uh, Russell Howe's Good News, which um, made me a headliner. Sort of, I went from kind of like being like a middle spot to being like a headliner. And um, and and when when you get up there and you realise that so much of it is just all to chance anyway, you know, it's about kind of like get you. you what I try and do is I try and get all the bits for a car together. And then I take it up to Edinburgh, and then I assemble the car when I'm in the venue, and right. and it's and I think that I think that's how I kind of try and do it. And if I need sort of like a new bit, then I'll write it. But I'm not like writing the show. I'm kind of like going. There's a little gap there that 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 isn't clear enough for like this bit to work later on. So now I'm going to fill that gap with with that bit, uh, or um, I've got a message that I want to say, and I don't know how to fit it into the show so it's about working out the logistics of how to do it all and it does change when you're in the room um uh yeah and so so i think when that happens you kind of you kind of you you, you're serious about writing the show but in terms of constructing the show and putting a show together you have to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt Mm-hmm. And also kind of like you might have the best material ever, but you do it in front of the most ungrateful audience that you've ever seen. And like I've had I've had gigs where they've been going so badly that like even within the last year where I've gone kind of gone, I've got a really good bit coming up now and I'm not going to do it because I like it. And if I do it in front of you... You don't deserve it. <laughs> you're going to make me hate it. You're going to make me yeah. doubt it. Like, next time I do it, I'm going to be thinking, is it any good? So I'll be kind of like, I'll do all my B, C material, but I'm not giving you the A stuff because you're going to... You, you don't know what to do with it. So, <laughs> so, so there's kind of like a bit of that, you know? It's, I, I, first and foremost, 
I think it's really fun. I really enjoy putting a show together and taking, you know, I don't think I've ever said that in any interview. I've always kind of like been kind of a little bit like ponderous about it. But I, what I find putting a show together and making it work, that's the really fun bit. And, and I enjoy it, you know. Well, it really sounds to me like your love of stand-up is back and thriving. Can You know, if we went back at the early stage of the pandemic where you didn't want to get up and do it again. Yeah. It sounds like it, you're firing on all cylinders there, that the passion and the love is is where it needs to be. Yeah, and but I think that... Um, I think that it's... Um, a lot of that is the audience, you know. It's It's kind of... I love I love going out there and I love doing a show and I love I love doing the merch you know I I sign merch at the end and I always say you know you don't have to buy anything you can just say hello if that's what you want and and that's like a really important part to me and the, the whole the whole evening is kind of like um really special so to go out and meet people again and kind of perform in front of I've enjoyed doing club gigs since I've come back. You know, when you're on a mixed bill where, you know, you're one of five comedians and that's the sort of stuff that before the pandemic, uh, it, um, yeah, it would terrify me. I'd get really stressed about it. And I think one of the important things that I've done since the pandemic was I've kind of come to terms with the fact that I am a stand-up comedian. I've gone, right, this is my job. This is what I do. Is you probably you know you know after the pandemic I needed to make some money and it was just like what's the quickest way to make some money? Well, I can get a gig tonight and I can go out and do it. The only problem is I don't want to do it. So how do I make myself want to do it? And so after the pandemic, I spent like a, a, a couple of months, you know, just going out there and doing gigs and retraining and reteaching myself how to do stand up and how to enjoy it. And and I went from kind of like dreading club gigs to kind of like going back out there and just really, just really making the most of them and really enjoying them. And um, and in the past, I've really managed to split rooms where some people love me and some people hate me, and I'll be having a great gig and a bad gig at the same time to kind of like lowering that percentage so that more people were enjoying it. And um, uh, yeah, I'm being, I'm, I'm kind of like being more instinctive about it and uh, and I've taught myself how to just sort of like, if I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life, I better fucking start enjoying it. And so yeah. so I've taught myself how to enjoy it and, and and I love it now and it's brilliant. And and it's sort of like such a weird distant memory to think it's something that I didn't want to do, you know? Mm. But it was it was a couple of years ago. So. Why, did you, why did you shy away from calling yourself a stand-up comedian or admitting to yourself that, you were a stand-up comedian. Was it through embarrassment or you didn't feel legit or...? Um, No, I think it was because um, I found it hard. It was really difficult. It was not not doing it. I'm all right when I'm on stage. As soon as I get on stage, even if it's a bad gig, as soon as I'm on stage, you know what you're dealing with. But it's waiting all day to get on stage and not knowing. And then... and, And so I would have... Um, I would have a gig coming up, and I, it would be like it would be like an app running on the in, you know you'd be low level 
stressed about it. And then the closer it would get... In the, when I first started doing stand-up comedy, if I had a gig, I would be nervous for two weeks before the gig. And then it got down to about an hour. And, and, uh, and, and now I'm doing it, or my goal for doing it... I didn't do club, I didn't do club sets for about maybe six years. I would do Edinburgh every year or I would do, or I'd be doing telly and I couldn't do Edinburgh. Um, and, um, and my show, my, you know, when, when I did a 20, my 20 consisted of, there's five one-liners. Then I do a song. Then I do a bit of audience participation. Then I do a poem. Then I do a story. Then I do another song. Then I do some more one-liners. Then I do, and it was just like, there were so many elements for me to remember. I would just freak out about, oh my God, I'm going to forget something or whatever. What if it goes wrong? And then you start planning for plan B rather than plan A and go, well, if I get that bit wrong, then maybe if I do that, and you go like, why am I learning plan B when I should just be concentrating on plan A? And, <laughs> and it's just kind of like, uh, there were so many elements to it that it was, it, you know, it was overwhelming to me. And then when I came back to it after the pandemic, it was just like, right, OK, throw all that out. I, I need to remember three things, yeah? I need to remember Pepsi Max Cherry, Sainsbury's and HelloFresh. And I can do 20 minutes with those three things and, uh, and that will earn me whatever money for that night, you know? And... I can just go up. I don't have to think about it at any point throughout the day. don't have to build up to it all through the week. I probably think about it five minutes before I go on stage and then I walk on stage and I do it. And it wasn't about generating material. It was about making the material I had work and it was about being comfortable with just getting up and doing it. And, and, and that's what this show is sort of like made from. It's made from routines that I just found really enjoyable, really straightforward, really easy to remember, and I'd just go out and I'd do it. And it wasn't like song lyrics where it's just I, 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 I freak out about song lyrics. Mm. Um, uh, I write songs, but I find remembering the songs incredibly difficult. <laughs> and uh, I've got a really terrible memory with that, with that stuff. But with stand-up, it's not like I've written a script and I've learned it. It's conversational, and you say it, sort of fairly similar every single day until you get like the, the, the pattern sort of sorted in your head. And then, and then you remember it like that way. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I wouldn't say that I was embarrassed about being a stand-up comedian, but I would say that I found it really, really, really difficult. And when I started doing telly, I was just like, um, uh, not that I find that easy, but, you don't have that immediate pressure of getting up in front of a room full of people and trying to make them laugh. And it mm. was, it was kind of like, I find, I found like acting kind of, it was something that I've always wanted to do, but also um, it's a different, it's a different sort of stress. It's a different pressure um, that isn't necessarily about, uh, I don't know, like TV acting is different from theatre acting as well, but um, mm. but it's kind of like I found that... Also, Uncle was just, just the most supportive environment that you could have done it under. And um, and so I sort of like found my way over the series to to, to work out what it was, how, how to do it, I suppose. Yeah. No, I'm only asking about um, feeling legitimate, cause I, and not that this is about me, and it never is, but in my 20s, <laughs> I, I used to be 
am embarrassed to, to, to call myself an actor. And I know many other people that, that are like that because they just don't, they don't feel legitimate. And over the years, you just go, oh, actually, I think I've kind of earned my stripes now. And not that I want to go around with a megaphone saying it, but certainly if someone asks me at a party, I'm not going to uh, pretend that I have another career. I think, yeah, I think that, uh, like, it's imposter syndrome, isn't it? And you're kind of, well, I'm, I'm an actor, but I'm going to get found out one day that I'm not an actor. And everyone's going to realise that I'm not an actor and, and it's going to be... You know, with comedy, it's slightly different because... Um, when you're at a wedding and you bump into someone and they say, what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a comedian. Uh, they, um, you know, if you say you're an actor, they don't say, go on, then do us a bit of Hamlet. But when you're a comedian, it's like, I'll tell us a joke. So there is kind of like a thing where you just sort of like, you, you frame it differently. You say, oh, I'm a writer, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, or, I mean, I, yeah. So I think there is kind of like... <laughs> no, but what they do, what they do say when you say I'm an actor is... What would I have seen you in? Yeah, right. And then that's and always it's... sort of like, I, well, you get you get people that recognise you, who come up to you and say, "Are you famous?" And you go, mm. "Well, no, <laughs> <laughs> obviously not." <laughs> you know. Um, uh, so, so there is sort of like there's the there's the embarrassment in that, but there's also, um, I think that one of the hardest things that you can do is admit to yourself what your dreams are, and. Uh, and it's like one of those things where you kind of like, you know, you, you say to yourself, "Oh, well, I want to be, I want to be an actor. I don't just want to be an actor. I want to be a successful actor, you know, or I want to be famous, or I want to be uh, the best comedian in the country. I want to be whatever and whatever your dream is." And and the first thing you do is you kind of like go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's not a thing. I'm, I, I, look, how do I just sort of like go about my daily?" And dreams are really easy to put up on a shelf and just sort of like admire until. They're, they're not relevant anymore until that moment has passed. And I think one of the hard things to do is to sort of like say, no, this is what I want to do. I've got one shot at this. It's this window of my life and I'm going to really go for it and I'm going to try and make something of this. And either it works or it doesn't. But, like, I think that the important thing is that you tried. And I, 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 people always used to come up to me saying, oh, fucking hell, you're brave being, an, uh, being a comedian, aren't you? That's like the hardest job in the world. And I would be like, yeah, I think that it is, I think it is hard, but, or it is scary. But I always found what was scarier was the thought of getting to the end of my life on my deathbed and thinking I never did it, I never tried. And so, so I do find stand-up scary, but I also find the, the prospect of not doing stand-up scarier. So... Uh, so I went for the less scary... I'm, I'm a coward. I went for the less scary option, which was getting up and doing it, you know? Nick Helm, that seems like such a perfect place to end our conversation. I've really loved it. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you for asking me. That's very good. You're welcome, my friend. And good luck with the tour, mate. It's brilliant. Great. Thank you very much. Um, it was lovely to see you again. And another episode is done. What did I tell you? What a lovely... A lovely, grounded, but very sensitive man, I think Nick Helm is. And I'm thrilled that he came in. I loved that chat. As I said, you know what I'm like. I don't do plugs. No one asked me. When people ask me to do the plug-in, I just go, no, I just go to somebody else's podcast or something. You know, there's those people that do that. What have we become is Nick Helm's uh, stand-up tour show that you can go and catch right now. Google it. 
if it's near you, go. It is a good night out. And my God, you get your money's worth. Um, it's not just a straight one hour. You know, he comes on, you've got an interval, you've got more. It's fantastic. And hopefully, after you've heard this uh, podcast now, you'll go and get some tickets. I would. I did. And I really enjoyed it. I can heartily recommend it. So, what else have we got to say? N- not a lot, because obviously you can hear in my voice, I'm quite tired. I'm going to go to bed very soon. Um, but thank you for being so patient and hanging in there. The podcast will be coming back, as I said, on a, a, a more regular basis very, very soon. So uh, keep the faith, Lord. This has been going five years. We're not dropping out now. And we've got some good guests coming up that you are not going to want to miss. We are going to bow out season 10 as we started, as we always start and as we always end on a massive high with brilliant guests, with conversations that you're not hearing anywhere else. And if you feel like you can support us, then go to patreon.com slash the two shot pod. And you know what? If you want something else, we've got hoodies, we've got t-shirts, we've got mugs, we've got stickers, but do you know what? It's getting a bit colder. Maybe those lovely, toasty, soft hoodies have got your name written all over it. And if that's the way you want to support us, I'm not, I'm not going to hold you back. You do that. I heartily recommend the grey. It's so soft and it looks very cool. As ever, you can support us on all the social medias. Shout us out, tag us in. We're Twitter, we're Facebook, we're Instagram at Two Shot Pod. And it's Two Shot Pod at gmail.com if you want to drop us a line. Right? You do whatever you need to do. And I'm going to go to bed. And until I see you again which will be very soon, I promise. I've been Craig Parkinson, he's been producer Griff, and this has been the very welcome return of the Two Show Podcast. Take it easy. The Two Shot Podcast was presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. The remix of our theme tune is by Stolen Valor. Cheers.